Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Another World Audiobooks. So happy to have you here. We are carrying on this the second to last story in this book, uh, The Naval Treaty. So um, yeah, I guess without further ado, let's jump right into it. I give you The Naval Treaty. 11. The Naval Treaty. The July which immediately succeeded my marriage was made memorable by three cases of interest, in which I had the privilege of being associated with Sherlock Holmes and of studying his methods. I find them recorded in my notes under the headings of The Adventure of the Second Stain, The Adventure of the Naval Treaty, and The Adventure of the Tired Captain. The first of these, however, deals with interests of such importance, and implicates so many of the first families in the kingdom, that for many years it will be impossible to make it public. No case, however, in which Holmes was engaged, has ever illustrated the value of his analytical methods so clearly, or has impressed those who were associated with him so deeply. I still retain an almost verbatim report of the interview, in which he demonstrated the true facts of the case of Monsieur Dubique, of the Paris police, and Fritz von Walbaum, the well-known specialist of Danzig, both of whom had wasted their energies upon what proved to be side issues. The new century will have come, however, before the story can be safely told. Meanwhile, I pass on to the second on my list, which promised also at one time to be of national importance— and was marked by several incidents which gave it a quite unique character. During my school days, I had been intimately associated with a lad named Percy Phelps, who was of much the same age as myself, though he was two classes ahead of me. He was a very brilliant boy, and carried away every prize which the school had to offer, finished his exploits by winning a scholarship which sent him on to continue his triumphant career at Cambridge. He was, as I remember, extremely well connected, and even when we were all little boys together, we knew that his mother's brother was Lord Holdhurst, the great conservative politician. This gaudy relationship did him little good at school. On the contrary, it seemed rather a piquant thing for us to chevy him about the playground and hit him over the shins with a wicket, but it was another thing when he came out into the world— I heard vaguely that his abilities, and the influences which he commanded, had won him a good position at the foreign office, and then he passed completely out of my mind, until the following letter recalled his existence. Briar Bray Walking My dear Watson, I have no doubt that you remember Tadpole Phelps, who was in the fifth form when you were in the third— it is possible, even, that you may have heard that through my uncle's influence I obtained a good appointment at the foreign office, and that I was in a situation of trust and honour until a horrible misfortune came suddenly to blast my career. There is no use writing of the details of that dreadful event. In the event of your acceding to my request, it is probable that I shall have to narrate them to you. I have only just recovered from nine weeks of brain fever, and am still exceedingly weak." Do you think that you could bring me your friend, Mr. Holmes, down to see me? I should like to have his opinion on the case, though the authorities assure me that nothing more can be done. Do try to bring him down, and as soon as possible. Every minute seems an hour while I live in this state of horrible suspense. Assure him that if I have not asked his advice sooner, it was not because I did not appreciate his talents, but because I have been off my head ever since the blow fell." Now I am clear again, though I dare not think of it too much for fear of a relapse. I am still so weak that I have to write, as you see, by dictating. Do try to bring him. Your old schoolfellow, Percy Phelps. 
There was something that touched me as I read this letter. Something pitiable in the reiterated appeals to bring homes. So moved was I, that even had it been a difficult matter, I should have tried it. But, of course, I knew well that Holmes loved his art, so that he was ever as ready to bring his aid as his client could be to receive it. My wife agreed with me that not a moment should be lost in laying the matter before him, and so, within an hour of breakfast time, I found myself back once more in the old rooms in Baker Street. Holmes was seated at his side table, clad in his dressing gown, and working hard over a chemical investigation. A large curved retort was boiling furiously in the bluish flame of a Bunsen burner, and the distilled drops were condensing into a two-litre measure. My friend hardly glanced up as I entered, and I, seeing that his investigation must be of importance, seated myself in an armchair and waited. He dipped into this bottle or that, drawing out a few drops of each with his glass pipette, and finally brought a test tube containing a solution over to the table. In his right hand he held a slip of litmus paper. "'You come at a crisis, Watson,' said he. "'If this paper remains blue, all is well. If it turns red, it means a man's life.' He dipped into the test tube, and it flushed at once into a dull, dirty crimson. "'Huh!' "'I thought as much,' he cried. "'I will be at your service in an instant, Watson. "'You will find tobacco in the Persian slipper.' "'He turned to his desk and scribbled off several telegrams, "'which were handed over to the page-boy. "'Then he drew himself down into the chair opposite "'and drew up his knees until his fingers clasped "'round his long, thin shins. "'A very commonplace little murder,' said he. "'You've got something better, I fancy. "'You are the stormy petrel of crime, Watson.' "'What is it?' "'I handed him the letter, which he read with the most concentrated attention. "'It does not tell us very much, does it?' "'He remarked as he handed it back to me. "'Hardly anything. "'And yet the writing is of interest.' "'But the writing is not his own.' "'Precisely. It is a woman's.' "'A man's, surely?' I cried. "'No, a woman's, and a woman of rare character.' You see, at the commencement of an investigation, it is something to know that your client is in close contact with someone who, for good or evil, has an exceptional nature. My interest is already awakened in the case. If you are ready, we will start at once for walking, and see this diplomist who is in such evil case, and the lady to whom he dictates his letters. We were fortunate enough to catch an early train at Waterloo, and, in a little under an hour, we found ourselves among the fir woods in the heather of walking. Briarbray proved to be a large, detached house, standing in extensive grounds within a few minutes' walk of the station. On sending in our cards, we were shown into an elegantly appointed drawing-room, where we were joined in a few minutes by a rather stout man, who received us with much hospitality. His age may have been nearer forty than thirty, but his cheeks were so ruddy and his eyes so merry that he still conveyed the impression of a plump and mischievous boy. "'I'm so glad that you have come,' said he, shaking our hands with effusion. "'Percy has been inquiring for you all morning. Oh, poor old chap, he clings to any straw. His father and his mother asked me to see you, for the mere mention of the subject is very painful to them.' "'We have had no details yet.' "'observed Holmes. "'I perceive that you are not yourself a member of the family.' "'Our acquaintance looked surprised, "'and then, glancing down, he began to laugh. "'Of course, you saw the J.H. monogram on my locket,' said he. 
For a moment I thought you had done something clever. Joseph Harrison is my name, and as Percy is to marry my sister Annie, I shall be at least a relation by marriage. You will find my sister in his room, for she has nursed him hand and foot this two months back. Perhaps we'd better go in at once, for I know how impatient he is. The chamber in which we were shown was on the same floor as the drawing-room. It was furnished partly as a sitting and partly as a bedroom, with flowers arranged daintily in every nook and corner. A young man, very pale and worn, was lying upon a sofa near the open window, through which came the rich scent of the garden and the balmy summer air. A woman was sitting beside him, who rose as we entered. "'Shall I leave, Percy?' she asked. He clutched her hand to detain her. "'How are you, Watson?' said he cordially. "'I should never have known you under that moustache, and I dare say you would not be prepared to swear to me. This, I presume, is your celebrated friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes.' I introduced him in a few words, and we both sat down. The stout young man had left us, but his sister still remained with her hand in that of the invalid. She was a striking-looking woman, a little short and thick for symmetry, but with a beautiful olive complexion, large, dark Italian eyes, and a wealth of deep black hair. Her rich tints made the white face of her companion the more worn and haggard by the contrast. "'I won't waste your time,' said he, raising himself upon the sofa. "'I'll plunge into the matter without further preamble. I was a happy and successful man, Mr. Holmes, and on the eve of being married, when a sudden and dreadful misfortune wrecked all my prospects in life, I was, as Watson may have told you, in the foreign office, and through the influence of my uncle, Lord Holdhurst, I rose rapidly to a responsible position.' When my uncle became foreign minister in this administration, he gave me several missions of trust, and, as I always brought them to a successful conclusion, he came at last to have the utmost confidence in my abilities and tact. Nearly ten weeks ago, to be more accurate, on the 23rd of May, he called me into his private room, and after complimenting me on the good work which I had done, he informed me that he had a new commission of trust for me to execute— "'This,' said he, taking a grey roll of paper from his bureau, "'is the original of that secret treaty between England and Italy, "'of which I regret to say some rumours have already got into the public press. "'It is of enormous importance that nothing further should leak out. "'The French or the Russian embassy would pay an immense sum "'to learn the contents of these papers. "'They should not leave my bureau, "'were it not that it is absolutely necessary to have them copied.' "'You have a desk in your office?' "'Yes, sir. "'Then take the treaty and lock it up there. "'I shall give directions that you may remain behind when the others go, "'so that you may copy it at your leisure, without fear of being overlooked. "'When you have finished, relock both the original and the draft in the desk, "'and hand them over to me personally tomorrow morning. "'I took the papers and—' "'Excuse me an instant,' said Holmes. "'Were you alone during this conversation?' Absolutely. In a large room? Thirty feet each way. In the centre? Yes, about it. And speaking low? My uncle's voice is always remarkably low. I hardly spoke at all. Thank you, said Holmes, shutting his eyes. Pray, go on. I did exactly as he indicated, and waited until the other clerks had departed. 
One of them in my room, Charles Gorot, had some areas of work to make up, so I left him there and went out to dine. When I returned, he was gone. I was anxious to hurry my work, for I knew that Joseph, that Mr. Harrison, whom you saw just now, was in town, and that he would travel down to walking by the eleven o'clock train, and I wanted, if possible, to catch it. When I came to examine the treaty, I saw at once that it was of such importance that my uncle had been guilty of no exaggeration in what he had said. Without going into the details, I may say that it defined the position of Great Britain towards the Triple Alliance, and foreshadowed the policy which this country would pursue in the event of the French fleet gaining a complete ascendancy over that of Italy in the Mediterranean. The questions treated in it were purely naval, and the end were the signatures of the high dignitaries who had signed it. I glanced my eyes over it, and then settled down to my task of copying. It was a long document, written in the French language, and containing twenty-six separate articles. I copied as quickly as I could, but at nine o'clock I had only done nine articles, and it seemed hopeless for me to attempt to catch my train. I was feeling drowsy and stupid, partly from my dinner and also from the effects of a long day's work. A cup of coffee would clear my brain. A commissionaire remains all night in a little lodge at the foot of the stairs, and is in the habit of making coffee at his spirit lamp for any of the officials who may be working overtime. I rang the bell, therefore, to summon him. To my surprise, it was a woman who answered the summons, a large, coarse-faced elderly woman in an apron. She explained that she was the commissioner's wife who did the chairing, and I gave her the order for the coffee. I wrote two more articles, and then, feeling more drowsy than ever, I rose and walked up and down the room to stretch my legs. My coffee had not yet come, and I wondered what the cause of the delay could be. Opening the door, I started down the corridor to find out. There was a straight passage, dimly lighted, which led from the room in which I had been working, and was the only exit from it. It ended in a curving staircase with the commissioner's lodge and the passage at the bottom. Halfway down the staircase is a small landing, with another passage running into it at right angles. This second one leads by means of a second small stair to a side door, used by servants, and also as a shortcut by clerks when coming from Charles Street. Here is a rough chart of the place. "'Thank you. I think that I quite follow you,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'It is of the utmost importance that you should notice this point.' I went down the stairs and into the hall, where I found the commissioner fast asleep in his box, with the kettle boiling furiously upon the spirit lamp. I took off the kettle and blew out the lamp, for the water was spurting over the floor. Then I put out my hand, and was about to shake the man, who was still sleeping soundly, when a bell over his head rang loudly, and he woke with a start. "'Mr. Phelps, sir,' said he, looking at me in bewilderment. "'I came down to see if my coffee was ready.' I was boiling the kettle when I fell asleep, sir. He looked at me, and then up at the still quivering bell with an ever-growing astonishment upon his face. "'If you was here, sir, then who rang the bell?' he asked. "'The bell?' I cried. "'What bell is it?' "'It's the bell of the room you were working in.' A cold hand seemed to close round my heart. Someone, then, was in that room where my precious treaty lay upon the table— I ran frantically up the stairs and along the passage. There was no one in the corridors, Mr. Holmes. There was no one in the room. All was exactly as I left it, save only 
that the papers which had been committed to my care had been taken from the desk on which they lay. The copy was there, and the original was gone. Holmes sat up in his chair and rubbed his hands. I could see that the problem was entirely to his heart. Pray, what did you do then? he murmured. I recognized in an instant that the thief must have come up the stairs from the side door. Of course, I must have met him if he had come the other way. You were satisfied that he could not have been concealed in the room all the time, or in the corridor which you have just described as dimly lighted? It is absolutely impossible. A rat could not conceal himself either in the room or the corridor. There is no cover at all. Thank you. Pray proceed. The commissionaire, seeing by my pale face that something was to be feared, had followed me upstairs. Now we both rushed along the corridor and down the steep steps which led to Charles Street. The door at the bottom was closed, but unlocked. We flung it open and rushed out. I can distinctly remember that as we did so, there came three chimes from a neighbouring clock. It was quarter to ten. That is of enormous importance, said Holmes, making a note upon his shirt cuff. The night was very dark, and a thin, warm rain was falling. There was no one in Charles Street, but a great traffic was going on, as usual, in Whitehall, at the extremity. We rushed along the pavement, bareheaded as we were, and at the far corner we found a policeman standing. "'A robbery has been committed,' I gasped. "'A document of immense value has been stolen from the Foreign Office. Has anyone passed this way?' "'I've been standing here for a quarter of an hour, sir,' said he. Only one person has passed during that time, a woman, tall and elderly, with a paisley shawl. "'Ah, that is only my wife,' cried the commissioner. "'Has no one else passed? No one.' "'Then it must be the other way that the thief took,' cried the fellow, tugging at my sleeve. But I was not satisfied, and the attempts which he made to draw me away increased my suspicions. "'Which way did the woman go?' I cried. "'I don't know, sir.' I noticed her pass, but I had no special reason for watching her. She seemed to be in a hurry. How long ago was it? Oh, not very many minutes. Within the last five? Well, it could not be more than five. You're only wasting your time, sir, and every minute now is of importance, cried the commissioner. Take my word for it that my old woman has nothing to do with it, and come down to the other end of the street. Well, if you won't, I will. And with that, he rushed off in the other direction. But I was after him in an instant, and caught him by the sleeve. "'Where do you live?' said I. Sixteen Ivy Lane, Brixton,' he answered. "'But don't let yourself be drawn away upon a false scent, Mr. Phelps. Come to the other end of the street, and let us see if we can hear of anything.' Nothing was to be lost by following his advice. With the policeman we both hurried down, but only to find the street full of traffic, many people coming and going, but all only too eager to get to a place of safety upon so what a night.' There was no lounger who could tell us who had passed. Then we returned to the office and searched the stairs and the passage without result. The corridor which led to the room was laid down with a kind of creamy linoleum which shows an impression very easily. We examined it very carefully, but found no outline of any footmark. Had it been raining all evening? Since about seven. How is it, then, that the woman who came into the room about nine left no traces with her muddy boots. I am glad you raised the point. It occurred to me at the time. The chairwomen are in the habit of taking off their boots at the commissioner's office and putting on list slippers. That is very clear. There were no marks then, though the night was a wet one. 
The chain of events is certainly one of extraordinary interest. What did you do next? We examined the room also. There is no possibility of a secret door, and the windows are quite thirty feet from the ground. Both of them were fastened on the inside. The carpet prevents any possibility of a trap door, and the ceiling is of the extraordinary whitewashed kind. I would pledge my life that whoever stole my papers could only have come through the door. How about the fireplace? They use none. There is a stove. The bell rope hangs from the wire just to the right of my desk. Whoever rang it must have come right up to the desk to do it. But why should any criminal wish to ring the bell? It is a most insoluble mystery. Certainly the incident was unusual. What were your next steps? You examined the room, I presume, to see if the intruder had left any traces, any cigar end or drop glove or hairpin or other trifle? There was nothing of the sort. No smell? Well, we never thought of that. Ah, a scent of tobacco would have been worth a great deal to us in such an investigation. I never smoked myself, so I think I should have observed if there had been any smell of tobacco. There was absolutely no clue of any kind. The only tangible fact was that the commissioner's wife, Mrs. Tangy was the name, had hurried out of the place. He could give no explanation save that it was about the time when the woman always went home. The policeman and I agreed that our best plan would be to seize the woman before she could get rid of the papers, presuming that she had them. The alarm had reached Scotland Yard by this time, and Mr. Forbes, the detective, came round at once and took up the case with a great deal of energy. We hired a hansom, and in half an hour we were at the address which had been given to us. A young woman opened the door, who proved to be Mrs. Tangy's eldest daughter. Her mother had not come back yet, and we were shown into the front room to wait. About ten minutes later a knock came at the door, and here we made the one serious mistake for which I blame myself. Instead of opening the door ourselves, we allowed the girl to do so. We heard her say, "'Mother, there are two men in the house waiting to see you,' and in an instant afterwards we heard the patter of feet rushing down the passage. Forbes flung open the door, and we both ran into the back room or kitchen, but the woman had got there before us. She stared at us with defiant eyes, and then, suddenly recognizing me, an expression of absolute astonishment came over her face. "'Why, if it isn't Mr. Phelps of the office,' she cried. "'Come, come, who did you think we were when you ran away from us?' asked my companion. "'I thought you were the brokers,' said she. "'We have had some trouble with the tradesmen.' "'That's not quite good enough,' answered Forbes. "'We have reason to believe that you have taken a paper of importance from the foreign office, "'and that you ran in here to dispose of it. "'You must come back with us to Scotland Yard to be searched.' "'Actually, I didn't give you the naval treaty, because it already got stolen, "'so I don't have it, so I can't give it to you. "'Anyway, <laughs> thanks guys for listening to it today. Uh, "'I do have a very special listener shout-out.' that I wanted to shout out. So um, it's just it just makes my heart very happy when I get when I hear from listeners. And so this one comes out to Shireen Reeves, and I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, but she commented on Facebook there and said, I recently joined Spotify and found your stories. Couldn't be happier. Thanks so much. You're a joy to listen to. Loving the Sherlock's home stories. Thank you so much. So just don't want to say thank you so much for sending that. <laughs> so you're thanking me and I'm thanking you because it just makes me so happy to hear from you guys and know that you're enjoying um, 
enjoying what, what you're listening to because I put a lot of time and effort into this and um, when I hear back from you guys and know that you're enjoying it, that just makes it all so worth it. So thank you so much, Reen, for um, for commenting there. And if you would like a shout out on the show, all you got to do is just go to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. All the links are down below in the, in the description. You can check those out and uh, follow us and leave me a comment and I'll give you a shout out on the show. Thanks so much for listening today, guys. And remember to tune in next week. We're going to be coming back with uh, the next part of this story. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist.